0: All right, before we talk about uh, Matt Taibbi's article on Wall Street, I want to turn to Wall Street 11 years ago. Tuesday marked the 11th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, most prominently on Lower Manhattan, wherein both World Trade Towers were brought down. There were certainly some moving uh, commemorations on television about, uh, about that great tragedy. I was struck by the story of a couple of workers in the North Tower whom, instead of descending like everybody else, decided they needed to go back up and try and rescue people. Their efforts, it's estimated, saved 78 lives. Both men, unfortunately, were caught in the collapse of the tower and perished. Their stories and, and related stories of, of that of that tragic day certainly did illustrate some of what uh, is the best of the human species. Our willingness to sometimes take time to try and save perfect strangers. And take time when there is no time and when our own... Uh, Lives are threatened. There's so much you could say about 9-11 that, you know, one whole program could not possibly do it justice. But there was one curious thing I noted in New Scientist magazine a couple of uh, months ago, the June 26th issue, which perhaps clarified one of the the great mysteries of 9-11. When I was visiting there last spring, I I noted uh, at the fire museum they had a, a loop running of one of, the, um, one of the firemen. He was on a fireboat, Chief Fuentes, Al Fuentes. He narrowly escaped death in, in the collapse of the towers, but what I thought was curious was his description of the initiation of the collapse, where he described shining blue light seen in each corner of the building before it came down. There, of course, is a great deal of speculation about what brought those buildings down. Did find it curious that they had Mr. Fuentes, Al Fuentes, talking about this shiny blue light at each corner in an official film being shown at this museum. Well, according to New Scientist, some inexplicable flashes of electricity burst out of powdery, powdery materials seconds before they form cracks and fall. Apparently, Troy Schoenbrock of Rutgers University And colleagues discovered these flashes by studying small avalanches created in the lab by swirling powders such as flour in revolving cylinders. Electrical charges as large as 500 volts were detected up to 4.5 seconds before these avalanches occurred. The team found that the bursts originated from tiny flaws in the structure of the densely packed powder. These propagated toward the surface as the cylinder revolved, eventually resulting in a crack that sheared off a portion of the powder from the main body. Noted the piece, in New Scientist, it's well known that failing materials and earthquakes release electrical signals. What's new, Shinbrot said, is the discovery that discharges are triggered by structural flaws preceding the failure itself. The the researchers saw the same thing in powders used to make pharmaceuticals. They have no explanation as yet, but have ruled out a buildup of static electricity, chemical production of electricity, and pressure effects. Note in the magazine, these inexplicable flashes of electricity burst out of powdery materials. Uh, If better understood, could be monitored to forewarn of earthquakes, concrete bridge collapses, or failures in the ceramic components of engines, such as turbine blades. Interesting. And of course, perhaps, why flashes of light were seen in the towers before they collapsed. All right, let's talk about uh, the excellent reporting of Matt Taibbi. His piece in the current Rolling Stone, Greed and Debt, How Mitt Romney and Bain Capital Staged an Epic Wealth Grab, Destroyed Jobs, and Stuck Others with the Bill, is, uh, I think, mandatory reading for, um, for voters in this country. Of course, that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. But to quote from the piece... Everyone knows that Mitt Romney's fantastically rich, having scored great success, the legend goes, as a, quote, turnaround specialist, unquote, a shrewd financial operator who revived moribund companies as a high-priced consultant for a storied Wall Street private equity firm. But what most voters don't know is the way Mitt Romney actually made his fortune, by borrowing vast sums of money that other people were forced to pay back. This is the plain, stark reality that has somehow eluded America's top political journalists for two consecutive presidential campaigns. Mitt Romney is one of the greatest and most irresponsible debt creators of all time. Taibbi noted that last May, in a much-touted speech in Iowa, Romney used language that was literally inflammatory to describe America's federal borrowing. Said Romney, a prairie fire of debt is sweeping across Iowa and our nation. Every day we fail to act, that fire gets closer to the homes and children we love, said Taibbi, and this is where we get to the hypocrisy at the heart of Mitt Romney. By making Debt the centerpiece of his campaign, Romney was making a calculated bluff of historic dimensions, placing a massive all-in bet on the rank and competence of the American press corps. The result has been a brilliant comedy. A man makes a $250 million fortune loading up companies with debt and then extracting million-dollar fees from those same companies in exchange for the generous services of telling them who needs to be fired in order to finance the debt payments he saddled them with in the first place. Said Taibi. that man then runs for president, writing an image of children roasting on flames of debt choosing as his running mate perhaps the only politician in America more pompous and self-righteous on the subject of the evils of borrowed money than the candidate himself. Said Matt Taibbi, if Romney pulls off this whopper, you'll have to tip your hat to him. No one in history has ever successfully run for president writing this big of a lie. It's almost enough to make you think he's really qualified for the White House. Taibbi goes on. Four years ago, the Mitt Romneys of the world nearly destroyed the global economy with their greed, short-sightedness, and most notably, wildly irresponsible use of debt in pursuit of personal profit. The site was so disgusting that people everywhere were ready to drop an H-bomb on Lower Manhattan and bayonet the survivors. But today, the same insane greed ethos, the same belief in the lunatic pursuit of instant borrowed millions, it's dusted itself off, it's had a shave and a shoe shine, and it's back out there running for president. Referring to Wall Street Wheeler dealers, Taibbi said, Mitt believes the same thing those guys believe. He's been right with them on the front lines of the financial revolution, a decades-long campaign in which the old, simple, let's-make-stuff-and-sell-it manufacturing economy was replaced with a new, highly complex, let's-take-stuff-and-trash-it financial economy. Instead of cars and airplanes, we build swaps, CDOs, and other toxic financial products. Instead of building new companies from the ground up, we took out massive bank loans and used them to acquire existing firms, liquidating every asset in sight and leaving the target companies holding the note. Taibbi goes on to explain how back in the 1980s, the term leveraged buyout became well known to Americans and... Gordon Gecko from Oliver Stone's Wall Street sort of became the epitome of the, uh, the corporate raider. Well, according to Taibbi, Mitt Romney is exactly that sort of individual, using exactly that sort of technique to have gotten where he is. Taibbi notes that Romney refers himself as a helper of companies. Gordon Gecko called himself a liberator. Said Tayebi, here's how Romney would go about liberating a company. A private equity firm, like Bain Capital, typically seeks out floundering businesses with good cash flows. It then puts down a relatively small amount of its own money and runs to a big bank, like Goldman Sachs or Citigroup, for the rest of the financing. Most leveraged buyouts are financed with 60-90% to borrowed cash. The takeover firm then uses that borrowed money to buy a controlling stake in the target company, either with or without its consent. When a leveraged buyout is done without the consent of the target, it's called a hostile takeover. Such thrilling acts of corporate piracy were made legend in the 80s, most notably the 1990 attack, by notorious corporate raiders Colbert Kravis Roberts against R.J.R. Nabisco, a deal memorialized in the book, Barbarians at the Gate. Romney and Bain avoided the hostile approach, preferring to secure the cooperation of their takeover targets by buying off a company's management with lucrative bonuses. Once management's on board, the rest is just math. Bain might put down $20 million of its own, then borrow $350 million from an investment bank and take over a controlling stake. When Bain borrows all that money from the bank, it's the target company that ends up on the hook for all of the debt. Said Taibbi, this whole business model wasn't really helping, of course, and it wasn't new. Fans of mob movies will recognize what's known as the bust-out in which a gangster takes over a restaurant or sporting goods store and then monetizes his investment by running up giant debts on the company's credit line. Think Paulie buying all those cases of Cuddy Sark and Goodfellas. When the note comes due, the mobster simply torches the restaurant and collects the insurance money. Reduced to their most basic level, the leverage buyout engineered by Romney followed exactly the same business model. One Wall Street trader told Taby with a laugh, it's the bust out, that's all it is. We do not have time to go into all the details outlined in the article, but again, I highly recommend, dear listener, that you check out this piece. Of course, the best part about all of this is after you've amassed some capital by this leverage buyout, after which you may decide, well, you know what? Let's pay out some dividends to the new owners. Because they've done a great job? No. Just because they can. But the best part about all of this is our tax structure encourages it. Note of the piece, in the majority of these deals, the tax deduction has a big enough impact on the bottom line that the takeover wouldn't work without it. Yes, you get to deduct the interest on the money that you borrowed, which makes the whole thing work. And for the corporate pirates running the show, when you have to pay up on your income, well, you get to pay it at uh, capital gains rates, half of what most of us pay. Whole things summarized rather succinctly by it. Rebecca Wilkins, described as senior counsel for the Center for Tax Justice. Those two tax rules distort the economics of private equity investments, making them much more lucrative than they should be. So we get more of that activity than the market would support on its own. It's a topic we'll have to return uh, to again before Election Day. Right, I want to thank Matt Taibbi for his excellent writing. We want to thank Marcos Breton of the Sacramento Bee for his September 9th piece, which I think I'm going to read damn near in its entirety. We hope this may induce Mr. Breton to come on this program and, and augment his column. Said Marcos Breton on September 9th, A dear friend of mine, a Catholic priest, often encourages me to remain on the side of the angels when writing about social issues. I'm trying, Father, but on the issue of homelessness... I'm on the wrong side of conventional wisdom in liberal Sacramento. This is because the well-supported push for homeless justice in Sacramento has resulted in many injustices. The people who act out of love and compassion for our most downtrodden will often show no compassion for the people who get in their way. The issue reeks of hypocrisy in Sacramento, just as certain pockets of the region reek with urine and human excrement. To even state it that plainly, to portray the issue as anything other than earthbound angels helping modern-day Tom Jodes, is to be called a, quote, hater, unquote. I don't hate anyone or anything, but I do have eyes, and I know what I see. Last week, when I visited one of the prime spots occupied by homeless in this city, I saw Sacramento's homeless issue in a nutshell. First off, the Jode family, the fictional Depression-era heroes of John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath is not living on the American River Parkway. I didn't see many casualties of California's wretched economy. Ask anyone outside the sanctified circle of homeless advocates and they will tell you. The people who are out there have been out there for years. In the language of the streets, there are some bad dudes out there. Large dogs protect illegal encampments and statues of pornography are all over the place. There are mentally ill people and people who will take the food the church groups put out there, but that's it. It seems they don't want to be in shelters. As you walk along trails meant for hiking and horseback riding, you will see tents on one side and toilets on the other. What kind of toilets? The kind you find in nature. People relieve themselves on the ground and leave scattered pieces of toilet paper in piles. When that smell hits you, it only punctuates an unsafe feeling as you go deeper into the parkway. I went with Bob Slobe, whose family transferred 400 acres of the parkway to Sacramento County in 1989. By his own admission, Sloeb is known as a hater by Sacramento's homeless advocates. He's definitely angry, and with good reason, as his family's former land has become virtually unusable. In and around where Highway 160 crosses the American River, you have beautiful country that for too long has been a dangerous haven for homeless people. It begins with Loaves and Fishes, Sacramento's largest homeless charity. Many, if not most, of the people living illegal in the American River Parkway use the many services at Loaves. Sister Libby Fernandez, the executive director of Loaves, is a truly beautiful human being. But where I falter, and others at Loaves, is that they are not willing to acknowledge the growing negative effects they are having on Sacramento. They have done a brilliant job on three fronts, recruiting powerful allies who have enabled illegal camping on the parkway promoting an attitude around liberal Sacramento that these poor people need to go somewhere, and having multiple media outlets at the ready whenever authorities try to uphold the law and move homeless people out. Mr. Bertone goes on. Mark Marin, a Loaves ally and one of the shrewdest lawyers in Sacramento, got Sacramento County to agree to rules that have exacerbated the homeless problem. When authorities want to move homeless people out, they must give them 48 hours notice. All the homeless folks have to do is move to another part of the parkway, and the notification process begins again. Brilliant. Now that people can drop anchor in the parkway, churches and charities from across Sacramento region are dropping food there regularly. Some might call these food drops loving examples of charity. They aren't. They may be well-intentioned, but they're creating an unsafe situation. Please stop. Take your charity to establish food banks. By making the parkway even more attractive to the homeless, you're making a bad situation worse. He goes on. In the past, law enforcement in this town have been criticized for enforcing statutes against homeless camping. But authorities like Sheriff Scott Jones and District Attorney Jan Scully should be encouraged to do their jobs, not shy away from them. What's it going to take for authorities to take action? When I was in the parkway, I could imagine unspeakable things happening in remote areas where no one would hear the screams of, say, an abducted child. It's only a matter of time. I think those are some profound words from Marcos Breton. They're going to make some people pretty unhappy. But if you've been out there on the parkway, and I have been, and recommend your listener that you check it out sometime on your own, you will find that what he's talking about reflects reality. It said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and I think that uh, loaves and fishes, unfortunately, is a primo example of exactly that. I did a disclaimer, didn't I? Yes, dear listener, you may disagree with me on this, and that is your prerogative. But unlike, I would say, the majority of you, um, I've had to get up in the middle of the night, on many a night, to leave a warm bed when I was very tired and very sleepy, to go take care of these individuals. And they got to tell you, there's a lot of mythology built up around them and their situation. And I'm grateful to Marcus Bretone for calling it as he sees it. And yes, we do hope he'll come on this program to augment those remarks. The invitation is certainly there, Marcos. All right, that about does it for today's program. This show was produced by Edward McMillan, as they all are. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Our thanks to General Manager Renner Burkle, and we hope to bring on a General Manager of KZFR Rick Anderson in the next week or two as well. And we hope to have, well, an expedition going up and down Interstate 5 to link up two great radio stations. Stay tuned for developments on that front.